Good morning. Last week was a good week. We were able to get together live in a person. We all had masks on, we, but we could still recognize one another. We were able to sing and, and fellowship together. It was great to, to get together. Uh, we know not, not everybody is able to do that for various reasons, so we're going to continue to provide the videos, uh, sermons here for a, a while, and hope that serves your needs. And by the way, Happy Father's Day. Hope there's some happy fathers out there. <clears throat> As we think about what's going on today with the pandemic and the threats with which it confronts us, have you noticed also how much injustice and how reactions to injustice threatens to tear our, our society apart? It's crazy times. And we wonder who's, who's able to be a, a just leader in the midst of the, of the season of injustice or perceived injustice in many ways. And uh, it's difficult to identify leaders who can really stand up and, and, and guide us through these things. It's similar to the question that, that the author or narrator of the books of Samuel was addressing. Because he, this author or the narrator for Samuel was asking this question throughout. Who is fit to be king in Israel? And what is the nature of kingship in Israel? So who, who is fit to be king over God's covenant people? And that answer seemed to be David, at least in his earlier days. But the narrator uh, wants us to see that by the grace of God's covenant, his chosen king, still he is God's chosen king. The author does this by how he structures the book as a whole, and how he structures the last four chapters. So the book as a whole has begins in chapter 2 with um, Hannah's prayer and his poem. And then you get these two um, poems in chapters 22 and 23 toward the end of the book. And, the, and so these bookend the, the whole story and they give theological, theological definition to everything else in the books of Samuel. And then within the last four chapters, he, he also shows us that these, these poems are very important. By the way, he puts those together. So in chapter 21, the first part of chapter 21 is, is about Yahweh's, the Lord's wrath against Israel because of some sins they committed. Same with the last chapter, chapter 24, is about uh, God's visiting his wrath on Israel for some sins. Then when you bump in two chapters, either side of that, in, in the, uh, the last part of chapter 21 and the last part of chapter 23 you get David's heroes of David's mighty men so the exploits of David's uh, warriors who fought for him and then you also have with that those sandwich in these two poems uh, Psalm 20 or 2 Samuel 22 and the first seven verses of 2 Samuel 23 and so the ch chapter 22 is the same as Psalm 18 in your Bible and that it's a song of praise, thanksgiving. And the poem in chapter 23 is David's last words. So what the narrator wants us to see is these, these poems are important for what he has to emphasize in, in the books of Samuel. They give a de definition to everything else that goes on in Samuel. And they talk about David as the ideal king. So um, it's, it's basically it's a thanksgiving psalm. He's giving thanksgiving to God. Other kings in the ancient Near East would write similar, similar mem memoirs 
of poems or poems boasting of their greatness. But this Thanksgiving psalm to, to God boasts of how great God is and gives all the credit to God for, for giving David victory over his enemies. So it's about the king and his God. And so if I was going to sum up the whole point of this chapter in one sentence, I would say it this way. God rescues his chosen king so that through the king's reign, God would be praised among the nations forever. God rescues his chosen king so through the king's reign, God, God would be praised among the nations forever. And in verse 1, verse 1 kind of, of, of this psalm, it's a very long psalm, uh, verse 1 kind of is the headline for this, this chapter, and, and it reads like this. David spoke to the Lord the words of the song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. So there wasn't just one day where, where God delivered uh, David from his enemies. This is basically this is just a reflection on his whole lifetime. And uh, the, the author put this psalm here toward the end of the book, and he's saying this really is, is a uh, theological reflection on David as God's ideal king, God's chosen king for Israel. Then we have the reason God, that David is so thankful to God is contained in the first, uh, in the next verse tw 2 to 20. So I'm going to read this for you. It's a pretty long section here. In verse 2 through verse 20. He said, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior, you save me from violence. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. For the ways of death encompass me, the torrents of, of destruction assailed me, the cords of shield entangled me, the snares of death confronted me. In my distress I called upon the Lord. To my God I called. From his temple he heard my voice, and my cry came to his ears. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations of the heavens trembled and quaked, because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils, and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He was seen on the wings of the wind. He made, my, he made darkness around him his canopy, thick clouds, a gathering of water. Out of the brightness before him, coals of fire flamed forth. The Lord thundered from heaven and Most High uttered his voice. And he sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen. The foundations of the world were laid bare at the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of his, the breath of his nostrils. He sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity. He rescued me, because, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted for me. He delighted in me. Immediately, David piles on all this imagery. So, again, it's poetry. And it's very personal for David. He, 
I hear all these personal pronouns, my, 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 my Lord, my God is my rock, my, my shield, uh, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold, my refuge, my savior. So this is the king recognizing how God has, has been behind all his victories over and deliverances from his enemies. It's not talking about how great David had become, but God was his rescuer from death. God was his refuge from death. He knows it's God who has saved him from his enemies, from violence. He deserves praise for saving him from his enemies. You see the um, the poetic, the poetry here by by these parallelisms and a lot from verse five on. Uh, parallelisms are basically one sentence states truth, and the next sentence will will uh, say it in a little bit different way, and and uh, it will help uh, you understand more what he's trying to say. So, parallelisms a lot, and crazy imagery that's not um, it's not like. Not visible, supernatural, spectacular, special effects. But it's not merely a supercharged David. Imagery like this in text shows up in text like Exodus 15, like where wherever God is 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 uh, delivering His people, um, where God's at work, He's 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 doing things supernatural behind the scenes. You can't see it, but you know, <clears throat> you know that God is working in in amazing ways. So He delivers David from death. And enemies were too strong for him. So he admits, yeah, I had enemies that, that they were too mighty for me. And God delivered me from them. He writes as God's chosen king who is the representative of his, of his chosen nation. His chosen people. Ultimately, his words have their greatest fulfillment in his promised offspring, Jesus Christ, the son of David. So just like for Israel... Israel depended on David's relationship with God. Um, the church today depends on the relationship of Jesus to God and his Father. Like David, Jesus from infancy faced death, plots against his life. But unlike David, Jesus experienced death itself. Now how did God deliver Jesus from death? Well, not by delivering him from dying, but from death itself by raising him from the dead. Into new life, fit for the new creation. Because he is faithful to his covenant with David, in which he promised that one of his sons would rule from David's throne forever. God promised an eternal um, an eternal offspring for David. And so he fulfills this in Jesus by raising him from the dead. And Jesus becomes a life-giving savior for everybody. In fact, one of the worst enemies every, every human being must face, including David, is death. David praised God for rescuing him from death. Since David's victories over his human enemies was for the earthly good of God's people. But eventually David died of old age, or he died, just like every other Israelite did. Death itself was still the unbeatable enemy. He still could not defeat death itself until the promised son of David who is also the son of God in whom was life who was and is the life bore our sins on the cross 
Jesus proved he was God's chosen king, not by being kept from, from death, but by entering it and conquering it for our eternal good. It was no contest. Death never, death never had a chance against Jesus, the life-giving Son of God. So Jesus' victory over our enemy, death, is our victory. And that is a great reason for praising God as our rock, as the strength of our salvation, as our Savior. Can we call upon Him who is worthy to be praised like David did? Yes. Romans 10 says, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. However, most of us, most of the time, have other concerns that often feel like they are more important or more urgent to deal with than, than death or even our other two big enemies, sin and Satan. Jesus delivered us, delivered us from our worst and biggest enemies, sin, death, and Satan. When we hear the good news that Jesus not only has conquered death for us, but also uh, has, has rescued us from sin and Satan, our reaction can be, well, that's nice, but I'm worried about how we're going to solve Things like racial divisions in our, in our nation, um, <clears throat> problems with law enforcement, uh, vaccine for COVID-19, and our choices in the upcoming election. My family problems, my um, getting my kids educated this fall, my job surviving the pandemic, uh, when will NFL start again this season, and, and then on top of that there's murder hornets. So all these things are real problems that, that we should be concerned about to some extent. But how can we truly praise and thank God for rescuing us from our worst enemies if our hearts are more concerned with these than far more powerful enemies that God has, has delivered us from? Then in verses 21 to 30, David talks about the reason why God is rescuing him. So I'm going to read those verses now, 21 to 30. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands. He rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me, and from his statutes I did not turn aside. I was blameless before him. I was blameless before him. And I kept myself from my guilt. And the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in His sight. With the merciful you show yourself merciful. With the blameless you show yourself blameless. With the purified you deal purely. And with the crooked you make yourself seem tortuous. You save the humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them down. For you are my lamp, O Lord, and my God lightens my darkness. By you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. How can David say these things? David who had Uriah's blood on his hands, he, murdered, he had Uriah murdered, and he also stole Uriah's wife in adultery. So these were bad enough. How, how, can, God, how can David say he's blameless and he's right before God and all these things? Well, in contrast to Saul, David submitted himself to God's word. He accepted and submitted to God's word even when it was spoken against him. 
Though there were times, especially in his later years, that David did not appear to have as close a relationship with God as he did earlier, um, <clears throat> he can say that he did not utterly reject his God's word. He did not. His faith and trust in God persevered, even when he didn't come clean for about his sin for months. Just as he gives God's, God the credit for everything else, he'll credit his blameless stat status before God to God. He, he gives God the credit for his blamelessness. God saves the humble people. God saw to, God saw to David remain, remain humble. God was in his, God was his lamp who lives darkness. God showed David his sin when he thought he could keep it hidden in the darkness. Now, only Jesus could, could say these things absolutely. Only Jesus could claim absolutely that he's blameless and he's never sinned because he, he never sinned. Jesus kept God's word down to the last detail. He did this as our representative. He was tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. Jesus lived a blameless life in thought, word, and deed. He did what Adam, Abraham, Moses, Israel, and David failed to do. That's why death could not hold him, because he, he didn't deserve death. Sin is the penalty for death. Uh, death is the penalty for sin, and Jesus, Jesus never sinned. So he could not be, he could not die under that, under his own sins, because he had none, none of his own sins. So Jesus did not deserve to die. He submitted to death. But it was not justice. Justice demanded that he be raised. He represents God's people as king in his life, his righteousness, his blamelessness. He lived, he lived the perfect life. He defeated death through the power of a sinless life. He defeated death through the power of a sinless life. Again, David says God saves the humble. We don't want to feel bad about our sins, about ourselves. We should, we should feel bad about our, our sin because his rebellion and defaming is a, a holy and good God. Perfectly good God. But God doesn't want you just to wallow in, in your bad feelings about your sin. He wants you to turn from your sin to the only one who has the cure. Jesus who already took the judgment you deserve, paid for it in full by his perfect and powerful righteousness for all who would turn to him as their Savior and King. Consider, consider how, how far he went for you to save you from sin. How can you think that sin isn't that big of a deal in the end and your good deeds, your good deeds will outweigh your bad ones, and that will save you. Many people are protesting and demanding ju justice these days. Indeed, there is much injustice in the world that needs to be made right. But how many people want to protest against God that He needs to give them justice? Do you really want to do that? 
there is a day coming in which we will each give an account to God for all that we have done, said, and thought. God will give us perfect justice in that day, and we should be terrified because none of us has a clean record before God. Unless you have a defender who's also your deliverer, by whose blood he satisfied God's just claims against you. If you have received Jesus Christ as your redemption by faith, God is just to justify you by the only one who could ever earn and merit a right standing before God for you. I earn death. I deserve death because of my sin. But if I will submit to King Jesus and trust in what He has done to rescue me from, from eternal death, God won't judge me according to what I have done or not done. God will judge me according to Christ's righteousness. God will not give me what I deserve. My sin became His sin. His death became my death. His righteousness will become my righteousness. Christ will be in me. I will be in Christ. As it says in 2 Corinthians 5, for our sake He made Him who to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the, right, the righteousness of God. In Christ we become the very righteousness of God of God. It's amazing. The Apostle John writes, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, in other words, if we, the word there, confess, means to say the same thing or to agree with God about. So if we, if we agree with God about our sins, that they are a big deal after all, so that the only way he could justly forgive them is to pour out his just wrath on us that our sins deserved on a sinless substitute. Then he, in faithful, faithfulness and justice, can and will no longer count them against us. And he can and will cleanse us from our otherwise removable stain, the otherwise irremovable stain of our unrighteousness. Okay, verse 31 to 51. This God, His way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in Him. For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? This God is my strong refuge and He has made my, he has made my way blameless. He made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You've given me the shield of your salvation and your gentleness made me great. You gave a wide place for my steps under me and my feet did not slip. I pursued my enemies and destroyed them and did not turn back until they were consumed. I consumed them. I thrust them through so that they did not rise. They fell under my feet. For you equipped me with strength for the battle. You made those who rise against me sink under me. You made my enemies turn their backs to me, those who hated me, and I destroyed them. They looked, but there was none to save. They cried to the Lord, but he did not answer them. 
I beat them fine as the dust of the earth. I crushed them and stamped them down like the mire of the streets. You, you delivered me from the strife with my people. You kept me as head of the nations. People who I had not known served me. Foreigners came cringing to me. As soon as they heard of me, they, they obeyed me. Foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of their fortresses. The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be, the God, be, be my God, the rock of my salvation. The God who gave me vengeance and brought down peoples under me. Who brought me out from my enemies. You exalted me above those who, who rose against me. You delivered me from men of violence. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations, and sing praises to you, sing praises to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king, and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. So in this, in this last section, David makes sure he gives all the credit to God for, for all his military skills, his escapes, and his victories. God's way is blameless. It's perfect and blameless. His word always proves true. If you take refuge in Him, He'll be a shield for you. Yahweh alone, the Lord alone is God. As um, <clears throat> 1 Samuel 2 said, There's none holy like the Lord, for there's none besides you. There's no rock like, like our God. Deuteronomy 32 says, His, their rock is not like our rock. David says, it is God who made his way blameless. David's strength, his skills as a warrior, his greatness, every escape from his enemies, every victory over them was because God had equipped David with strength. God also made his enemies weak or turn, turn and run before David. They freaked out because God was at work in them and in David. Other Israelites, when they were opposed to David, uh, they would cry out to God and he would not answer them. He would decisively defeat them, beating them fine like dust, crushing them. God delivered him from strife with his own people. God kept David as head of the surrounding nations. They often wouldn't even challenge David. They would immediately agree to his terms or, or they would just surrender. David closes with what, he, with what he, he began. Praising and exalting God as his rock. The rock of his salvation. God was David's avenger. He brought down the peoples of the nations under him. God exalted him over those who opposed him. God, God delivered him from men of violence. For this reason, David praises the Lord among the nations and will sing praises to his name. This is the reason God has done all this for David. He didn't do this just so that David would go down in history as a great king. He did all this for David so that David would praise Yahweh, the Lord, God, among the nations. And so David would sing praises to the name of Yahweh. As the first seven verses in chapter 23 make clear, David was a prophet, so he wrote scripture. He, he wrote the very words that God gave him. He was a sweet psalmist of Israel, and the word of God was on his, his tongue, in his mouth. 
in the last verse, recalling the covenant God made with David and his offspring, he says great salvation, and that word salvation there uh, is the word Yeshua, which you get Joshua, you get the name Jesus. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, that is to his Mashiach, Messiah, to David and his offspring forever. So, so all this is ultimately pointing to the Messiah. David's whole life was pointing to the Messiah. So as we said earlier, Jesus, Jesus defeated our worst enemies, sin, Satan, and death. He did it by his reign, which began on the cross. Now how could he do that? I mean, how could he actually start reigning God, for God's kingdom over God's people on the cross? Well, the promised son of David would begin his reign over the kingdom of God by defeating our three worst enemies by the humiliation of, of dying on a Roman cross. Normally the punishment for only the uh, worst criminals. So how could that be? Now looking back, we see how God was, was progressively revealing uh, through the way he worked with his people, Adam, Noah, Abraham, Israel, Moses, David. And we revealed through the prophets that God's kingdom, his saving reign and rule would come through the suffering of his chosen. But death on a cross... Everyone, Jews and Romans alike, knows that everyone who dies on a cross is under God's curse. But Jesus didn't deserve to be cursed. He took on himself the curse that would fall on sinners. For us, he did it. It was our curse he took. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. This is the way he would raise up a kingdom of redeemed sinners by the suffering and death of his chosen king as the way of establishing his kingdom by defeating and bringing just judgment against all who oppose him and making everything new. The new heavens and earth where righteousness dwells. Christ has shown no mercy to sin and death. He made a public spectacle of Satan and demons, triumph, triumphing over them on the cross. Now, if you're a thinking person, you might say, if Christ accomplished this, why is there still so much sin and injustice in the world? Why do we still die? And it seems like Satan is having a heyday in this world. Because God has a proven track record of fulfilling His Word. Because Christ was raised from the dead. As it says in Romans chapter 1, He was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all the nations. So Jesus, Jesus is raised from the dead and the apostles are tasked with um, cleaning that to the nations, raising up from among the nations those who are obedient by faith and praising God's name among the nations. Those who become obedient by faith for Christ's namesake will continue trusting God's purpose in this day, in this delay, suffering in union with Christ by faith. Now we are, we are in this already but not yet time of, of the fulfillment of the saving reign of, of King Jesus. This reign 
continues as he is now seated at the right hand of God and will continue forever and ever. God's chosen king has defeated sin, death, and devil before us to free us to follow him as our worship leader among the nations. We call the nations to turn from worshiping vain, false gods of every kind to worshiping, glorifying, and praising God alone. Now, everyone who's been gifted this new life in Christ, though we have not yet received the final fulfillment of this great salvation, will be, will be recognized by their David-like praise to God, knowing that He alone could have provided for us forgiveness and freedom from sin. This right status of His own perfect, obedi- perfectly obedient Son, that upon His return will give us sin and death-free bodies. Oh, that'll be great. Sickness no more, death no more, sin no more ever again. He'll fit us to see, glorify, and praise His name in a new heaven and earth where no injustice or evil will ever enter again. Only justice, righteousness, and joyful fellowship among some from every nation, ethnic group, and language. In Revelation, John writes, He loves us. Well, how has He loved us? How has God loved us? He has freed us from our sins and made us kingdom, priests to our God and Father. In Ephesians, we're told some amazing things. It's like too, too, good, too good to be true. Uh, in Christ, He has raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places. So, and somehow, spiritually now, we are already united with Christ in His reign as King from God's right hand. So we, we already have some of that going, even though we don't yet see it fulfilled in, in being His kingdom, being His co-rulers one day. And then in Ephesians, closing part there, in whom the whole structure being... Uh, Ephesians 2, in the chapter 2, he's building himself a holy temple where he will be praised and worshipped out of people. So he's taking us and building us into a holy temple in, in the Lord, in whom you're also being built together into a dwelling place of God by the Spirit. So these amazing truths are great promises. That in Christ, we're, we're his priests, we're to lead the nations in worshiping God, and we will uh, be a kingdom, we'll... we'll be ruling with Christ one day. Amazing truths. And this is why David was praising God as he looked forward to the coming of his, of his Son of Promise. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, that your promises are so far beyond anything we could ever imagine or hope for. You take a sinful people and you invest in them the very life of your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, for giving us his rightness with you as a gift. And His, and he has taken sin, death, and devil. He's neutralized them, Father, from, from having ongoing control over our lives. We long for that day, Father, when, when it will no longer be already somewhat. We already possess these things by, by faith in him. We long for the day when these things are fulfilled. 
We thank you, Father, that you, you proved yourself through David, your faithfulness to his covenant, that his son, his descendant, Jesus Christ, the son of David, has accomplished for us victory over all of our enemies and for your praise among the nations. We long for that day, Father, when you are praised by some from every, every ethnic group, every, every people, every language, all over the globe, in new heavens and new earth. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.